This Washington Post Live podcast is presented by Lando Lakes. We are a farmer-owned co-op reimagining our food system to feed human progress. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. On March 9th, the Washington Post brought together local Austin chefs, entrepreneurs, and thought leaders for a series of discussions about the future of food and issues at the intersection of culinary culture and broader social justice movements. From hyper-local gardening to bread box in your neighborhood grocery store, the way we experience, access, and enjoy food is changing fast. In this segment, experts will look at how innovations and changing priorities are revolutionizing our relationship with food from the supermarket to your kitchen counter. Let's listen. Well, hi, everyone. I'm Kat Sakreski, and I'm the author of the Technology 202 newsletter at The Washington Post. And I'm joined today by Jacob Pachenik, the co-founder of The Farm Project, and Randy Wilkinson, who's the creator of The Breadbot. And we're going to have a really interesting conversation today on innovation in food. And I think there's no better place to have this than South by Southwest, where there's so many great places to get food in Austin. And we're talking so much about technology with all the different companies that are here this week. So maybe just to kick things off, Randy, could you start and tell us a little bit about The Breadbot and the work that you've been doing? Sure. The BreadBot is actually a device that uh, is about 10 feet across, glass on the front, and it bakes bread from the very scratch uh, ingredients all the way through to the finished loaf. So at a store, you can come in and touch the screen and say, deliver that warm baked loaf that just came out of the oven. I want that one. Put it into your bag and take it home. And what that does by producing that bread at the store in front of you, you see transparently when it was baked, you know that it didn't need the artificial preservatives and everything in it because it was baked fresh in front of you. And with that, what we've done is to take the production from the factory in the center of the nearby city and moved it actually to the local location where it's being baked. And I'm really looking forward to digging into that with you. And that idea of knowing what's in your food connects really well with what you're doing on what you're doing at the Farm Project. And so could you tell us a little bit about that and this new initiative that you're launching at South by Southwest this week? Definitely. Um, yeah, the genesis of the Farm Project is when my wife and I were pregnant, expecting our first kid. And started to take a deeper look at the food that we were eating. It probably could have been on the last panel on uh, you know, fact-checking, but it seemed like you needed to hire a full like, research department just to figure out what was in your food. Um, and I realized that really at no time in our history as people have we ever known less about you know, now. And it's no wonder we've you seeded know, a lot of our relationship with food to companies that deliver it to us at low cost, convenient, but um, you know, companies, uh, they're profit motivated, and that's not that they're evil or anything like that, but they have um, you know, fiduciary responsibility to their shareholders to maximize profits, and they don't really get bonus points for the nutritional value or how you know, land stewardship, and, and uh, that's led to a host of problems, but we think that there's really only one solution, and that's really re-engaging consumers and empowering uh, people to be part of the, uh, the solution. And that's where the Farm Project uh, was started as a public benefit corp that's really designed to 
change the food system by directly um, empowering consumers and um, um, qualifying them to have an opinion um, on where their food comes from. And I think that the, the most profound way to do that is really helping people grow their own food. And so tell me a little bit about that because you know I think all of us in this room, we're all busy, we're looking for the most convenient option. What are you doing to make it easier for people to grow their own food? Yeah, so I think growing's in our DNA, but it doesn't really fit within modern times. You need a lot of space, you need time, um, and we're used to predictable, reliable results, and growing is sort of, you know, you don't know exactly what you're gonna get. So we try to modernize that experience by providing some infrastructure and support around that. So if you have space, that's great, but if not, we've got a um, hydroponic farm that can grow uh, 40 square foot uh, worth of food in, two, in uh, four square feet. Um, and then we have a network of farms where we grow <coughs> the baby plants for the first two to three weeks, we make sure they get off to a good start, and then we send them to our members to finish the growing um, themselves, and then we have a digital, a digital ecosystem to um, to help more, you know, to help you not only grow plants but really figure out what recipes that you can make with them. How can you fit that into at least if you got two kids and only five or 10 minutes to prepare something, how can you, how can you use the food that you've um, grown to do that? And it doesn't get much more local than growing it right in your house. But Randy, I was hoping you could talk to us a little bit about just the broader food trends we're seeing with localization. Um, you've talked before about how since the industrial revolution, we've been moving farther and farther away from the places that make our food, and now that's changing. Can you tell us a little bit about what that shift looks like and what you've meant by that statement? Sure, what happened at the time of the Industrial Revolution is really you think about where economic activity took place. It was on the farm, it was in the cobbler shop, out in the town and out in the countryside. But when the Industrial Revolution arrived, what happened is the, the everything moved to the center, to the factory, where all of the labors came and all of the power was at. And as a result, that's been the efficient place to, to make things. But what's happened is that because that's the efficient place to make things, in the case of bread, you need consistency of what that looks like. So you refine the flour until it doesn't have anything except the starch in it. And you, you then have to add things back in. I mean, how foolish is it to take all of the vitamins out and then add some of them back in, but not really what you need. And so what, what's happened is that in many areas, if you look at what's happening today with computers, the computer processing is moving back out to the edge. The, the uh, Adidas is making shoes on robots rather than in one central factory, moving it back towards the edge. So this movement back to the edge, closer to where we live and, and essentially local, that's the move that's happening. And so um, we are starting a pilot test with the BreadBot with uh, one of the large retailer grocers in the Northeast. And they're particularly interested in it because they see this as what they perceive to be the first of the micro-manufacturing revolution. 
they think that not only is bread going to be made in the store again back locally, but many of the uh, things are growing maybe in the store and other fresh things being made in the store rather than in the central factory. And because of that, that cost of uh, both the cost in monetary sense, but also in carbon footprint of taking all of these things that were made centrally and moving them to the stores like bread, when it happens out at the edge, things are saved. And so you mentioned how they think there's going to be this, this larger trend of micro-manufacturing in the stores. What are some of the other products that we could expect in the next decade to be micro-manufactured when we go to the grocery store? Well, I think that, um, just to, to name a couple, you can imagine um, uh, soup being able to take home a, the, the, everything's been done for you, but it's fresh, not three months ago made in a central factory. Uh, chips, what if they were fresh and instead of being, again, light, fluffy things made months ago being shipped to you, they're actually being made there. Uh, those would be just some of the early ideas of how that trend is likely to take place. And it seems like, and, and you sort of alluded to this in the beginning, if you're seeing your food be made in the grocery store, you have much more awareness of what's actually in your food. And I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the Farm Project and your new initiative, Lettuce Grows, and, and just how that's helping people understand what food is on their plate. Definitely, and when you grow it yourself, um, you really gain an appreciation, you know, and especially when we when it's made pretty easy to grow it. You start to go to the grocery store, you go to a restaurant, you start to feel qualified to ask the questions. Where did you know this lettuce come from? Um, I think that it really starts to uh, open the door to decommoditize food. Right now, there's really one type of food I think, and it's food, and I sort of liken what we're doing to what happened with solar panels 30 years ago or so. That, you know, people said this is a more efficient way or makes more sense to create power right here from the free sunlight. Um, and over time that became, those became much more efficient. But what it also did was start to um, bring out the fact that where the rest of your power, right, was coming from. And back then, you just had one type of power that was that you got. And now you can pick hydro, wind, solar. I don't know if anyone picks nuclear or gas, but <laughs> you can pick whatever you can pick whatever you want. And there's much more transparency there. So I think just by you know putting growing um, front and center and in public places and people's homes, it really makes them start to think about their choices. You know, we're not growing in our backyards anymore. And so you sort of lose that feel. But we are driving, you know, we're driving um, the food choices and, you know, and um, I think this is the way that gets it front and center. And so you're challenging people to grow 20% of their food. How did you come up with that number? Uh, good question. Uh, it sounded like a reasonable target. <laughs> uh, and I think it also depends if you're, you know, what your dietary uh, preference is uh, but in our um, in that two by two space um, you can grow enough to have a full like a full harvest a day so now I don't know if someone just wants to eat a big uh, head of kale
but you could have a little kale, a little bok choy, some tomatoes, and so, and the units are stackable, or you could have several of them. Um, and for, for our family, we probably eat more like 40%, you know, um, a day, but that's a, that's a target. Um, I think probably most people have less than, just from a fresh vegetable standpoint, you know, less than 5% or less than 2% a day. And so also I wanted to talk to you a little bit about sustainability with both of these initiatives. Um, you know, there's a lot of questions about the environment right now and how the current way that we move our food products around is contributing to trends like global warming and others. Randy, um, how do you think this localization trend in, in food also addresses those sustainability questions? Well, I think that the, <clears throat> for example, in our, in our case, the what we're displacing is bread that was made at that central factory. And when you make that bread, it becomes this light, fluffy loaf, and you load these fluffy loaves onto big, heavy trucks that need to go out to thousands of stores. Pollution from, from that, the, the expense from that, the congestion on the roads, etc. So by uh, the food actually being distributed as the compact bag of flour, it's a much more efficient system. We were talking about, in his case, you're not shipping the whole head of lettuce, you're shipping the small plant that will then grow. So in our modern world, there is a need for uh, efficiency of uh, uh, specialty of uh, production, but we've been spending way too much on the cost environmentally as well as uh, monetarily getting from central production to peripheral. And I think it's that edge production that is the common thread that you're seeing become more and more important. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about what you saw and about trends in food shopping. I mean, we're here at South by Southwest where there's a lot of technology companies that are betting on the idea that we're not going to go to the grocery store anymore, right? You have so many options now like Amazon and others that can bring that food directly to you. Um, so how are you thinking about that, especially as you do a rollout with retail grocery stores? Well, you know, it's an interesting thing. When we launched uh, in, at CES this year, announced the, the BreadBot, we expected that we would see a, a reasonable response from interested companies. But, uh, and, and if you think about it, bread as a category in supermarkets has been stagnant to even declining over the last few decades. So a company bringing bread to the sexy, massive CES, you would expect yeah, there's not going to be too much happening from that. And instead, the, the thing just went viral in terms of coverage around the world. We've heard from distributors and retailers in more than 60 countries asking for how they can get involved with it. And uh, Trevor Noah Daily Show did a spoof on, on this. That, that depth of response to us says what's happening is people are responding saying, no, no, we're very much interested in bread, but what we're not interested in is, is the way it's been that somebody is bringing it, again, local and fresh and without the preservatives. That's something that excites us and, and we're excited about that. And so as we talk to the grocers, what they're telling us is that they see this as engagement, um, uh, participatory on the part of the shopper. 
when you see in the stores that we've been in and you see the children come and, and love to watch and see, oh, wow, so this is how bread is made. It's, it's powder, it's flour, it becomes the dough ball, it rises, it bakes. That whole thing is new and engaging. And so I think that what you're seeing and, and what the, the initial worry was Amazon was taking over everything, we'd all be at home, everything would be shipped to us. I don't think that's true. I think engagement is something that we want, whether it's in growing our own as we should, or at least uh, seeing that it's here locally done is a trend that's, that's taking place. And on that point of kids coming to the store, seeing bread being made in that way, you know, when I think about the first time I saw bread being made, it was by a baker, right? Like a, a person doing that. And so I just want to talk to you a little bit about automation. There's a lot of questions about how people are going to be displaced by machines. And so how are you thinking about that as you roll out this technology that can make bread in, in the store? Well, the interesting thing is that the actual genesis of the idea that this came to be, and I'm not the creator of it, I uh, had the company that created it, but the idea generated from a young fellow who worked as a baker and hated getting up at three or four in the morning to get the bread rising, to get that whole thing started. And uh, I've talked to many bakers with carpal tunnel syndrome from all of the kneading of bread manually. So what we've done is actually, as we see it, um, enabled the baker to become much more engaged, not in the massive production of multiple loaves of, of the sandwich bread, but instead to work their craft of letting that be done with the automation, but for them to be engaged in uh, creating the artisan loaves and all of the varying kinds of things that we enjoy, we're just part of that mix. We are not replacing the whole and we enable those to be made. So I love the bread that comes out of the bread bot, but I also enjoy the handmade loaf that someone has at, at a bakery. It's, it, it, it enables the whole range and it also enables good premium healthy bread to be made at a much lower cost because of the lack of need for transportation and gets fresh bread at a much lower cost to the people who need it instead of the junk that they tend to be eating today. So how much does a loaf of bread that the bread bot makes typically cost? Well, let me put it this way. It, it, it depends on the retailer and what, how they're doing it. Right. But I can tell you that uh, in, in the, the cost of a loaf that, a, that today a commercial baker charges the store that they deliver that to can be, so the price you as a store are paying, 45%, as much as 45% of the, what you're paying for that bread is taken up in the cost of the distribution and the waste that takes place because of that distribution model that is so time insensitive. And so that 45% disappearing as cost means that the, the price drops tremendously. So in some cases, it can be as little as half the cost for a loaf of bread in terms of what we're bringing in as opposed to the traditional approach. And so kind of off of that point, so many of the technological innovations we've seen around food or 
that healthier eating movements have been limited to a certain segment of the economy. Typically, wealthier people have access to these healthier options. How are you thinking about democratizing access um, to these healthy foods at, at the Farm Project? Yeah, the whole the Farm Project and Let Us Grow is all about democratizing access. That's why we started it. Um, if you, similar to what you were just talking about, if you look at produce, right, 52% of it goes bad um, in our supply chain. So if you could take 52%, uh, if you could take that waste out, you just have the cost, right, of, of fresh produce. So what we're thinking about is really using, instead of using technology in food so that it could be produced far away from population centers and shelf-stabilized and preserved, we're looking at technology around food, um, better systems, smarter systems architecture. So if you, what we, in our farms, we, in a square foot, instead of growing, you know, one head of lettuce um, in eight weeks, we can grow uh, 75 baby plants. And then we can send those uh, to consumers who then grow using free real estate, right, and free time. So, and that, and the plants are, are alive until you eat them. So, theoretically, that additionally lowers the cost, right, by just using, or brings farmland closer to our centers. Um, and so what we aspire to do is at least have the cost of produce that's generally available now and make it much fresher. And so Jacob, we were talking backstage about how you founded the Farm Project when you were expecting and trying to learn more about your food. Um, if you think 20 years down the line, if you had a crystal ball and your kids are young adults, what do you think will be the biggest change in, in how we're eating? 20 years is a long time. Um, well, I know for Let Us Grow It, I think in 10 years, you'll go to the grocery store and you'll get a little baby seedling and you'll take it home and you'll finish growing it. You won't get instant gratification, um, but I think that that's, um, I think that's, you know, a smarter way to distribute uh, produce. But I think our kids are going to know a lot more about where their food came from and I think there's technology like blockchain and other sort of transparency um, that will start to be demanded by consumers and I think there'll just be you know a lot more information in, in Japan you know on meat you can scan a barcode and see you know which farm you know what ranch um, the cow uh, was born on and where did it go and the whole and the whole process. So that's there now, but I think things like that will be coming to this country. Um, Why do you think the U.S. has lagged on that type of transparency? I think we've been, as consumers, we've been about cost and convenience. And um, I think, at least for myself, for a while, I thought, you know, somebody's out there looking out for us. You know, or maybe it's like growing up in the 70s and 80s. Like, I remember when Tang came out, and it was like, oh, this has got to be good for you. Uh, and maybe it is. I don't know. <laughs> um, but I think now you look in, like, the political climate, things like, and just, is somebody, you know, you don't know. Is someone looking out for you? Do Are the right people making the right choices? Are there decisions being made? And 
I think it's just time for consumers to re-engage in that and, um, you know, technology is being used to bring those choices closer to the consumer and let them participate. Definitely. And Randy, same question. What do you think the biggest difference will be in how we eat in 20 years? I think that the the reasons for things having moved to the center and that centralization was driven by the realities of technology at the time, which is you bring all the brain power together, you bring all of the muscle together, it all happens centrally and then you send it out. I think that what's happening in technology today and the awareness of these things is that you can now bottle up that intelligence in the chip and you can take that muscle and you can move back out to the local location. So I think we're going to see a lot more demand from consumers for this. And I do think we're going to see more fresh things being available to us, participating in that as well as actually because of our demand moving back out to the edge. Makes a lot of sense. Well, that's about all the time that we have left for today with our panel. Thank you so much for being here today to Thank talk you. with us about these issues. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com. <laughs>